Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. My guest today is Kurt Willard Jansen, and today we are going to talk about his book, the height and fall of the Danish Empire. And what what brought your interest in the Danish Empire? Is it because you're Danish yourself? For if that's an obvious answer. Yeah, of course. Uh, but also, I have been educated uh, in the Danish history at Copenhagen University. And then I started teaching it at the university in Odense, University of Southern Denmark. Uh, and uh, actually felt a little uncomfortable with the framing of Danish history because uh, all books about history of Denmark, they are about present day Denmark. Uh, It's uh, the history of the things within the present borders of Denmark. And the the further you get back in time, the more it becomes it becomes uh, obvious that mm. uh, it's it's a, it it doesn't fit if you get back uh, to the Middle Ages or earlier, uh, because Denmark was different. And um, what was the research for this for for the book? How did you research? Yeah, it was a continuation of uh, what I've done earlier in the sense that. Uh, I am a medievalist, that's my main period. Uh, So I was reading the medieval sources from Denmark and from the neighboring countries uh, to see the connections and to try to find out what was the the frame of understanding for Danes living in the Middle Ages in the early modern period in antiquity. And then I, uh, together with a colleague, we started discussing if it is not the nation state of Denmark a thousand years ago, what is it then? And then we discussed different concepts and uh, ended by choosing empire because uh, it's a much more flexible construction back in in time. So uh, the the answer is, well, continue to read a lot of Danish sources, sources from Denmark, uh, and also to read some of the modern theoretical literature. What is an empire actually? And you touched on this in your introduction of the book. So what is the reason that an empire expands? How do you become an empire? You touched a little bit about this in the introduction. Yeah, it's probably uh, easier to illustrate if you contrast to the modern nation state. A modern nation state after 1800 or uh, after 1850 uh, is one area in which you are supposed to uh, talk the same language, for example, you have the same law, and uh, for hundreds of years you have had the same religion. Uh, Denmark was a Lutheran country, and uh, after uh, 1800, you were supposed to talk Danish. 
Uh, in contrast, you have the empires. You could say it is um, uh, a unit where people speak different languages. It's totally natural to have different languages. It is also very often places where people have different religion. Uh, you have groups with, with very different religions uh, and they are kept together by some kind of loyalty, not to the state, but to the emperor, uh, the symbolic figure. And very often it's also uh, kept together by simply by force, by military strength of the, of the emperor. Now, what is the reason for an empire expanding? That has been discussed by historians for, for generations now. Uh, and uh, most would say that empires tend to, to become bigger. Uh, and therefore, it starts automatically something that they continue to grow because uh, they get in contact with neighbors and um, they, they must fight because the neighbors want to take their, their territory. So there is an, an uh, <coughs> tendency of expansion uh, for political reasons, but also because um, they need the income from uh, the border areas, from the neighbors. Uh, empires need new land to colonize and new land to tax, to get taxation from, or new colonies, if you can use that word. Um, that from when Denmark became an empire, it's how, if I want to start before this, because you also mentioned that they had Roman relations with Denmark. And was Denmark a united country or did it have several small, small kings as was common in Scandinavia at the time? Uh, if we go back to, to what you call, <coughs> sorry, if we get back to what you could call prehistorical time before, before we have a lot of writing uh, or written sources, uh, if we go back to say zero to uh, 800, 900, um, it seems that there were a lot of small power centers within the area which is now Denmark. So we must imagine small kingdoms, small chieftains uh, fighting, competing to expand their own areas. And when they did that, uh, a lot of them somehow connected to the Roman Empire. Uh, we know that people from Denmark, or present-day Denmark, uh, they served in the Roman army. Probably was this as mercenaries? Uh, yeah, mercenaries or whatever. They could get a career. Uh, we know that some were mercenaries, uh, common soldiers, but also some actually were high-ranking officers. Uh, so you wouldn't probably call them mercenaries. But they got a career in the Roman Empire, in the Roman army, uh, served for years, and then some of them came back to Denmark and were buried in this burial mound where you have some fantastic Roman uh, jewelry, Roman glass, uh, Roman refined art buried together with these people, uh, say year 200, year 300 in Denmark. So the point is, uh, they knew about empires, they knew how they function. And we can then start interpreting some of the archaeological sources and say it fits uh, if we think Roman <laughs> and not this uh, old fashioned nationalistic Danish. It fits that they have actually tried to imitate 
for example, all these processions, all this uh, triumph after a successful war, uh, the war leader, the emperor or the Danish chieftain, whatever you would call it, collect the weapon of those who have been defeated, sacrifice it uh, to, to the gods and probably have had uh, the same kind of procession through the landscape as the emperors had in uh, Rome of antiquity. So how did the job of you unify Denmark? For, I think we need to talk about this first and where, how did, who, who decides that we want to unify Denmark and what time period are we talking about? Uh, I think it has uh, changed over time. Uh, Denmark, you could say, begin as a geographical uh, designation, geographical uh, unit. And then there have been more small kings within this area called Denmark. <laughs> uh, and um, what we can follow is uh, a process uh, in the 10th century where one king uh, starts conquering the others and build up uh, strong fortresses, the so-called Trelleborg. Uh, and then we are in the very late uh, 10th century, around 980 the King Harald, the Bluetooth. Uh, I think we can argue that he actually united uh, the different areas of Denmark, Jutland, the big island of Funen, the big island of Sealand, part of southern, what is now southern Norway, part of what is now southern Sweden today. Mm. So it was a, a military expansion. Uh, and I don't think you could talk about uh, a united uh, Danish land before Harald the Bluetooth. Mm. Did most kings agree to a united country? Did they have to take it by mere force? I think it was a, a, a conquest of the neighbors. A conquest starting in uh, Jutland on the peninsula and then conquering Fjun and conquering Sealand. Mm. Uh, and we can see that the old power centers, for example, on Sealand, uh, had existed sometimes for hundreds and hundreds of years with a local ruler, with big uh, halls, with burial mounds, and whatever. And they were closed down uh, around year 1000. Uh, probably because Harald the Bluetooth and his successors, they took over the control of the land and they moved the centers of administration. Um, how long did the rule because they have, well, how, what is his rule like? Can you tell, can we, do we know this? Is, it, is he the one that began to expand on the Danish empire or does he just rule what we know as Denmark? Uh, it is probably something that had begun much earlier, but with Harald the Bluetooth, we can see, we, we start getting written sources, and we can see that he was more successful than uh, anybody before him. So the unity created was larger, and it continued very clearly. Uh, he had connections to the Slavic areas in what is now today northern Germany. Uh, so he had troops coming from there. He was married into actually a pagan dynasty in uh, Pomerania. I wanted to ask Northern you, was a pagan himself or was it Christian? Yeah. Uh, he was the first, he, no, not the first. Uh, there had been Christian kings in uh, the geographical area of Denmark earlier, uh, but he was the one that uh, converted 
uh, claimed that he had, on a big runestone, claimed that he had won all Denmark and made the Danes Christians. Uh, and the point is, after him, uh, all successors, maybe with a small, one small exception, uh, all have been Christian kings. Before him, we can follow uh, for 200 years that some became Christians and then they were kicked out by some pagans. But after Harald the Bluetooth, uh, they have all been Christians. But that did not prevent him from making alliances with rulers in the Slavic areas who were not Christians, uh, but pagans. So he tried to expand in yeah, what is now Northern Germany. And uh, that continued his son, uh, actually conquered all yeah all of England, which was not all of England, but the central areas of England uh, in uh, the very early 11th century. Uh, and his son again was uh, Canute the Great, uh, who ruled a North Sea Empire, uh, including present-day Denmark, including large parts of Norway, and including uh, the most important parts of England. Now, so what Harald started actually developed very fast within two generations and became very, very big. So, when they tried to question the rest of Denmark, what's it like to say it? Although we should talk about it in it in the episode of Battle of Stickless, well, did he say you'd rather be Christian or you die, or is it was it was it the same like Saint Olaf did with Norway for Christian Norway, or was it free will? We actually don't know, uh, but what we can see is that it was uh, relatively successful. It was a relatively short process in in Denmark, and we can see it in the way people were buried. The uh, pagan way of burial stopped uh, very soon, within less than a generation. Uh, but we don't know if they were forced to convert or whether they uh, all suddenly thought it was a good idea. But I assume that um, there has been a kind of pressure. Yeah. Um, I, I remember because if the Danes were more busy with settling down that where they conquered but the Norwegians were more into plundering mon monarchs and um, sorry uh monasteries uh, but what what was the difference between Danes and Norwegian why did the Danes want to settle down and not to, like, just plunder like the Nor Norwegian Vikings did uh there may be a difference. Actually, a lot of Norwegians settled in uh, the Northern Isles of England, in uh, Man and Scotland and Orkney Islands. Uh, and later, they actually also settled in, uh, well, shortly afterwards, they settled in, in Iceland and Greenland. So some of the Norwegians settled uh, outside Norway. But probably many, many more Danes left Denmark and settled in England. Uh, I suppose it is because uh, the Denmark was more fertile at that time. The population of Denmark must have been much larger than the Norwegian one. And um, after 900, uh, the climate changed in Northern Europe. Uh, it became warmer. So there was a demographic expansion. Uh, the population of Denmark grew and they needed new land. And it probably grew much faster than the population of Norway. Was the conquest of England easy? Was it easy to conquer England? And how long have Rome been out of England at this point? Uh, 
they, they have started before we have any sources. There have been expeditions, there have been wars in England uh, from Scandinavia. It's actually interesting, the sixth century, there seem to have been very fine connections between Uppsala in Sweden and uh, southern England. Uh, so there has been connections, there has been uh, attempts of con uh, conquest. Uh, it was not easy, <laughs> you could say. It was a number of expeditions uh, through 200, 300 years, uh, organized by petty kings, by uh, big kings, uh, and very often, actually, uh, the Danish rulers, they were paid off by the English. They got tribute, uh, immense amounts of silver, uh, say, for very much in the, in the 10th century, uh, just to stay away. And then they stayed away for some years, and then they came back and got more silver. Uh, so it was not easy. It took a long time. But it actually uh, paid itself uh, very much because of this tribute from different English kings. I was looking at the map and it, it seemed like it required a large amount of England as well. Yeah, 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 they did, they did. And, uh, and as you said, they settled uh, and also introduced Danish customs and Danish laws, whatever that was at that time, we don't know. But that is the uh, name of, of the, that area of England, Danelagen, the Danish law area. And then, of course, they have uh, intermarried with the local population. So it was a colonization. They moved in, but they also uh, became part of the local uh, population. And it's very clear in England today, you have a lot of these small cities with Bü, uh, Grimsby and whatever, which is a Nordic word. Uh, and you have different words in common, egg is egg, uh, in Danish and in, Engl in English. Did they embrace the culture in England? Or did they, you, how did they rule? Did they rule with force or did they rule with... I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word kindness, but, you know, did they let them go by? Uh, they uh, force, but uh, it, it's very interesting to see that they used the kind of people you always use in an empire. They used uh, the big men, those with power in the border area. And they are notoriously unreliable. And we can see that also in, in the history of the Danish empire. Uh, suddenly they change side and then they support the local English king and then they change side again and support the Danish king. Mm. Um, and that has puzzled a lot of historians. Why did they use these persons who change side uh, very, very often? Uh, I think it is because they were exactly the persons who knew both cultures, those who followed the political situation uh, on both sides of the political border. So uh, if you had an alliance with them, they were, they were really, uh, presses for, they're really important for your policy. And then you had to take the risk that suddenly they moved to the other side. So that was one typical way of uh, governing an empire. Take the big local persons and, um, and get them involved. Uh, that has probably been supported also with uh, an advanced system of taking hostages. Uh, so you uh, made an agreement that the son of the local big man uh, had to go to Denmark. I had to live at the court of the Danish ruler. So you could always uh, cut off his head 
or uh, you could uh, educate him and uh, make strong bound, bind, uh, strong links to this young person who may later become the ruler in the area. Did it have some sort of code with the Norwegians and Swedish that they, they weren't allowed to plunder Danish territory anymore? Did that stop in a, after this? Uh, I think it, maybe it has become less uh, at some time uh, during the 11th century. Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, it continues the wars between Denmark, Norway and uh, Sweden, the war between rulers of these three countries have continued until the 17th century, actually, uh, with plunder, uh, with, uh, with war and violence. And so they settled down in England and they ruled for quite a while, but where, where else did they expand to at this point? It's the beginning of an expansion uh, in the 11th century into the Baltic area, into northern Germany. And um, shortly before 1100, uh, probably as far as uh, Estonia, maybe even mm -hmm. Finland. But these were small, small expeditions, uh, probably not anything that led to a colonization. But then we can see around 1100 uh, a change in orientation. Uh, before that, it was a North Sea Empire, uh, but that was lost to William the Conqueror in 1066. There were some attempts by Danish kings to reconquer England, but they did not succeed. But after 1100, there's a strong expansion into the Baltic uh, with conquest uh, simply going further and further east. And uh, a big point, an important turning point is 1168, uh, when the Danish king, the Danish king conquered the largest fortress, the largest pagan temple uh, for the Slavic people on Rügen uh, in northern Germany. And then they got papal at the mission to continue further east. And then starts what uh, became the conquest of Estonia. That, last, that was attempted for decades, 20 years, 30 years, uh, and ended in 1219 when the Danish king conquered uh, Tallinn and um, started ruling Estonia. So in uh, 100 years, a little more than 100 years, uh, Denmark became a Baltic empire instead of a North Sea empire. Uh, how did they travel on about conquering Norway? Because they just, I don't, I don't remember the year and they, they do so. Uh, it depends on which part of Norway, because in the Viking age with Harald Bluetooth and his successors, uh, there was a strong Danish presence in southern Norway mm. around uh, present day Oslo. Uh, and that was a combination of conquest and uh, dynastic policy of marrying into or uh, of supporting some Norwegians against other Norwegians. Uh, and then uh, throughout the Middle Ages, there's strong contacts. Uh, and, uh, and the end of the 14th century, uh, the daughter of the Danish king marries the Norwegian king. Uh, and uh, when he died, Denmark and Norway continued as a union with one ruler. So that actually began in 1380 
and it was confirmed uh, by confirmed. It was agreed on a big meeting between the councils of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden in 1397 that it should be one union with one ruler in the eternity. It didn't Is this where we get the Kalmar Union? That's the Kalmar Union, exactly, in 1397. But the, the union between Denmark and Norway actually began in 1380 uh, with the marriage of uh, Margareta to Håkon. Mm. Forgive me if I'm jumping in back and forth here, but I want, I want to touch upon the Holy Roman Emperor's Charlemagne and Denmark relation. What's that like? Uh, it is interesting because uh, from the Roman, German Roman Empire, from the point of view of German emperors, Denmark was an interesting border area that they wanted to conquer. And that actually started already in the ninth century with uh, Charlemagne. Uh, and it continued throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, it probably also illustrates that the different rulers of, of the Danish Empire, they were taking seriously. So it was important for the German emperor either to make alliances or to try to conquer uh, Denmark. Uh, for some years, actually several years in the 12th century, uh, Denmark was probably some kind of fief uh, under the uh, German emperor or had uh, sworn some kind of allegiance to the emperor. Uh, that stops in the late 12th century, in uh, 1182, apparently. Uh, and um, there's a lot of, of fuss in the early 13th century where the German Emperor Frederick II, he is for different reasons forced to cede uh, all the land north of the river Elbe to Danish rulers. And he immediately regretted it because it was a very strong power base and very strong economic area. Uh, so after 1214, he tries again and again to, to get it back. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's a long story, including the kidnapping of a Danish king and Ooh, two years in the, a, a tower and uh, Germany and negotiating about how to get him out. Uh, that was in 1223. So what was the Danish army like? Was it strong? Was it mediocre? What, what, what was it like in the how, how did they function? Uh, it is extremely interesting with military history. It's not so dull as people think, because because uh, normally you write Scandinavian history with everything starts in France, and then it spread and come to Germany, and hundred years later to England, and two hundred years later to Denmark, and then three hundred years later it may even reach Finland. If you look at the military technology, the point is you cannot sit and wait. 200 years because then you're killed by the others because they have better weapon. So we can see this, um, it happens exactly at the same time. When you get new weapon in Rome uh, in, in 400 uh, after Christ, uh, you have them in Denmark uh, half a year, one year later. And that continues throughout the Middle Ages. Every new military technology is adapted immediately if, it, if you can adapt it for the terrain. Uh, it I, I wanted that, to ask, because you mentioned yeah. Rome, how inf much influence was there? And we talked about how Danes worked for the Roman army. How much did they copy from Rome? 
And we also mentioned this in the episode with the, about the Roman army with Adrian Dodsworth as well. If people try to copy the Roman army, but did the Danes try to copy them? And was this why they were so successful in the conquests? Uh, if we go um, back in antiquity or prehistoric times, uh, it seems that they actually copied quite a lot in the sense they got uh, the weapons, the equipment at the same time uh, as they had it in Rome. And then they put something on uh, the hilt or whatever to uh, express the local fashion. But the technology, the new swords, uh, whatever, seem to have come immediately. And it's difficult to know, but they also seem to organize uh, the army uh, in the same way as the Romans. Probably, probably. It's a bit uncertain. When we get into the Middle Ages, uh, Viking Age and the Middle Ages, uh, it's, it's a different kind of warfare. The antique uh, big imperial army of Rome does not exist anymore. So it becomes a much more, um, you could say, fragmented kind of army. Uh, one leader on a much slower level with much smaller contingents uh, of people on horses, people on foot. Uh, but it seems that the Danish army yeah, followed the fashion and uh, was strong. Uh, and um, it consisted, you could say, of uh, some kind of general conscription uh, in the Viking Age that free men had to serve in the army, uh, maybe serve for some time, maybe not all the time, or serve in the summer expeditions every second or third year. Uh, and that continues uh, until after 1200. And then it becomes more and more professional that uh, the warriors are uh, mobilized permanently and the free, the free men, they are contributing by paying taxes. Uh, so there's a, a very important change around 1200, which is also what happens everywhere in, in Western Europe at the time. Something I find, find fascinating with ancient armies, and especially with Middle Ages army and in, armies in general, is how, how did you rise in the Danish army not to rank, in rank? Did you, was it just the elite that was the general, like like in ancient Rome and ancient Sparta, etc., or was it did you treat a normal soldier? Race, race, race to become a general. Um, I don't think normal soldiers had a great chance of, of rising. Uh, but if you belong to the class that had enough money uh, to uh, finance a horse and get the the better equipment, not only a, a so not only a, a spear and. Uh, a helmet, but if you could afford a horse and a sword, uh, then it seems that you had very good possibilities of rising uh, in the, say, 11th, 12th century. And then uh, there was an attempt to close ranks uh, within the nobility, uh, very clearly from the 14th century. They don't want new people coming in and getting the privileges, so they want to monopolize uh, yeah, the, the, the positions as officers. Uh, and that continues until the end of the Middle Ages. But you had the possibility, if you, if you had a good starting point, if you had the economy and the family connections, but if you were uh, locals conscripted uh, infantry 
I don't think you had very great chances of advancing. And so, something about the touch upon as well, because this was quite surprising when I read your book, is that they had quite good relations with the Pope in Rome. This was when they were Catholic, of course. But tell me, how good were the relations with Rome, the Pope in Rome and the Danish Empire? It is, it is actually quite interesting. <laughs> there were some areas in Europe that had a special relationship to the Pope, and Denmark was one of them. It goes back to probably... You wouldn't, think, you wouldn't think that when you think about the Danish Empire, because it's so far north, and it so, seems kind of... I don't want to be rude when saying this, but it seems kind of insignificant. But, but it's not at all when you read the book, and no. you find out that it's quite influential. Uh, it, it was it was actually uh, so uh, this idea about periphery and uh, insignificance that's the history writing of Danish professors from the late 19th century and until I mean actually the 1990s more than a hundred years uh, Danish historians said they have they have cultivated this idea of the small country that has always been uh, threatened by the big neighbor to the south the mm -hmm. Germans it's totally wrong that was not the case if you go back um, in history if you go back to the middle ages uh, Denmark and Denmark, but also Scandinavia, was an important place for the papacy because it was the area where you could expand. It was a missionary area. Uh, of course, France was also very important, but you, do, you didn't have a lot of pagans to convert in, in France. But you, you had pagan areas you could include in, in the church if you came to the Baltic area. So there was a, a support from the papacy. Uh, and also very often... Uh, there were troubles between the papacy and the German emperor. Uh, so different popes tried to ally with the rulers around the German empire. Uh, so it's very clear with, with Spain, for example, they are important allies of the papacy, but also Scandinavia and uh, a lot of the Eastern European countries, Poland, Hungary, uh, had the same special relation to, to the papacy. So how did can you elaborate a little bit on the the relations? Yeah, you could say it. It was uh, yeah, two side related. Uh, both parts had uh, great benefits from it. Uh, the Danish rulers, uh, as so many others, paid a special tax to the papacy. Uh, not only the normal tax to the church, but they also gave a tax from the country directly to the to the papacy. Uh, they supported different papal initiatives. Uh, one example is clearly the Crusades uh, from 1099, the conquest of Jerusalem uh, at the First Crusade. And then throughout the Middle Ages, different popes tried to launch new crusades uh, against different targets, and yeah. they needed the support of, of the secular rulers. Uh, so Denmark, for example, uh, contributed very much to crusades in the Baltic against pagans and the Stone. Did they participate in the crusades themselves? Yeah, they did. Uh, certainly, certainly. We, uh, we have a lot of examples of Danes who uh, took all the way to the Holy Land and participated in crusades uh, to gain Jerusalem, to regain Jerusalem, or to fight for the Holy Land. And we have all the expeditions in the Baltic for, for hundreds of years. And they were, most of them, many of them, they were considered proper crusades, totally on the same level as uh, with Jerusalem crusades. So uh, 
the rulers contributed in that sense. Uh, on the other hand, the popes contributed uh, to support the rulers. Uh, there were a number of uh, very interesting cases uh, from the 13th and 14th century in Denmark, where the king is um, fighting against the archbishop, his local archbishop. Uh, and in three cases, they actually uh, imprisoning the archbishop, yes. which uh, is totally impossible in the medieval Catholic world. I mean, it's it's a sin and they should be uh, <clears throat> excommunicated immediately uh, and they should go directly to hell. You cannot imprison an archbishop. Uh, and of course, the Pope... What was the reason for, for imprisoning the archbishop? Yeah, that's the, the point. Is if I just finished, the popes actually mm. allowed these kings to go much further than they would do with other kings, and that's interesting. So they got the benefit, the kings. Yeah, the reason uh, that is very difficult. It has something to do with uh, power uh, distribution of power. Who should have the income? Uh, who should uh, command the local troops? Uh, an archbishop and the bishop uh, had huge income in the uh, Middle Ages, and they also were obliged to provide soldiers when the king wanted. And sometimes they didn't want to provide soldiers for different reasons. Uh, yeah, very often because it was simply very expensive to provide soldiers. Uh, so that was one element who should uh, command these troops. And uh, another was uh, income to the churches and income from the peasants working or living on church land. Uh, the king would say, well, they, they are my peasants. <laughs> and the archbishop would say, no, they are my peasants. And I want the income, uh, the rent they have to pay and, and all the other things. So there were a lot of different reasons. And sometimes simply... Some it of wasn't the archbishop... reason for Catholic priests today. Yeah, I don't know if they don't have any. I don't know actually if they have any armors. Uh, no, modern bishops don't have armors. They had in the Middle Ages, but very important political figures. Yeah. Of course, also very important religious figures, but, but very important also in, in politics. Mm. And some of these guys, they were. Uh, they were brought up as aristocrats mm. uh, and uh, in the families when you start when you're two years old and being told you are the one who make all decisions never listen to anybody else uh, when they are three years old they start riding the horse and, mm. and, and uh, training to kill other people so somehow they have been today a lot of them would have been psychopaths uh, because they have been trained to have this enormous ego Mm. That was part of the bringing up of the kind of, kind of like man child. Sorry, kind of man childish, uh, I, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, and not 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 all, but uh, but really the, the high echelon of societies, and and a lot of them uh, became very very sensible persons and with great responsibility, but some of them were also very um, megalomanic. Mm. And there was even talk uh, in the you guys mentioned this in your, in your book, and there was even talk about the Danish king in marrying a Byzantine empress. How? Why? Why did this not happen? Uh, there were actually good connections uh, between Scandinavia and Byzantium, 
uh, all the way until 1453 Again, I want to say that we did an episode on the Varenian Guard with the YouTube channel Eastern Roman History, which is episode 20, 27, I believe. So if you want if you want to check them out, check, check it out. It's quite good. Okay, very good, yeah. Uh, and um, I mean, just like with the Western Roman Empire, uh, people came from Scandinavia, served there for, for years. Uh, it's very clear the same thing happened with the Eastern Roman Empire, with Byzantium. Uh, and uh, some made a fortune and came back also to, to Norway. Uh, Harald Hartrode uh, <clears throat> became immensely rich after having served in Byzantium for, for mm. years. Uh, and um, so they knew about the, the Greek culture, the Byzantine culture. And there was a, a middle station in Kiev, uh, which had a Nordic dynasty for hundreds of years. Uh, and they had good connections to Byzantium and they had good connections to Scandinavia. So we see a lot of people marrying, uh, rulers marrying uh, from Scandinavia to Kiev and even to Byzantium. Uh, and they brought names, they changed the name when they came from Kiev to Scandinavia, from uh, Greek to Nordic names. But what we must imagine is that they have actually uh, in Scandinavia, been talking, of course, Danish, but they have been talking also Russian together mm. at the court, uh, and some of them had clearly known Greek also. And so something, uh, another thing that they had quite influence on European politics in the Middle Ages, and how, do, how did the Danish Empire, not just with the Pope, but in general, in Europe, it was this because you mentioned that they married so much into the Kiev royal family and had so many marriage marriage alliances. Is that why they had so such huge influence of politics in Europe? Yeah, that was very much a part of it, uh, and uh, you can see it, it develops. Uh, it starts with, of course, marrying very much uh, the principalities around the Baltic. Uh, northern German principalities and within Scandinavia and to England and Kiev. Um, and then after, after 1200, uh, there are also more distant marriages uh, to Hungary, Bohemia, to Portugal, um, and uh, in Scandinavia, very much to Spain also. So uh, that was part of the policy. But then also that uh, the Scandinavian kingdom, they actually had a military power so they could support one group against the other. Uh, and very much uh, the, the fleet, uh, the naval power of Norway and of Denmark. So we know that uh, support by the Danish fleet uh, was part of the negotiations with the French king uh, in the 1190s and uh, again and again and again uh, far into the 14th century. We can make an alliance, you come with the fleet and we have uh, the infantry on land. Uh, so that was important. And then in the, in the Northern German area, uh, the king 
of Denmark, of the Danish Empire, was the lord of a number of lesser dukes and uh, counts, and they all had very important military and economic power. Northern Germany was extremely rich. And before the, the last thing I want to touch upon, because this, I want to say that this will be a two-parter with his colleague Michael Brandt's book, going to come on next week to talk about the height and fall of the Danish Empire. And but before we do go, I would want to say talk about the loop because they don't keep England for too long. So how did they lose England? England is it because of William the Conqueror, or was there internal other internal conflicts? Uh, it is uh, maybe a number of uh, unlucky incidents somehow. Uh, Harald Godwinson uh, was related. He was the last. Uh, Anglo-Saxon ruler, but he was uh, related to the Danish royal dynasty very closely. Um, and uh, he had to fight against uh, Harald uh, at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. And that has simply um, exhausted uh, his army. He won the Battle of Stamford Bridge in 1066, and then William the Conqueror uh, came to England and landed in southern England. So Harald Godwinson had to march uh, to towards Hastings, so the big battle at Hastings, only three weeks after the battle at Stamford Bridge. Uh, and um, he simply lost because the Norman forces with William the Conqueror, they, they, were, they were good. They were the elite soldiers of the time, but also because the English forces under Harald Godwinson, they, they have been exhausted and a lot of people had been killed. So two big battles within three weeks, that was too much. Uh, then one can say, uh, yeah, then it was um, perhaps lucky for William the Conqueror that he could keep England because there were plans uh, in the... Uh, 1070s to reconquer. There were attempts to collect a Danish fleet. Uh, it did not succeed for different reasons, but also because of internal rivalries within the Danish royal family. Uh, so one brother uh, conspired against another one. Uh, and there were troubles between Denmark and Norway, where kings were fighting each other. So all in all, uh, William came at a lucky time. And something I want to, because we, before, before I ask the next question, I want to ask, do we see Danish influence today in the conquered areas of England for which they had? Uh, you can see both ways in the sense that um, there are a lot of, of place names in England that clearly comes from, from Danish colonists uh, from the Viking age. Um, it is, uh, and the other way around, uh, a lot of the Danish church uh, liturgy, church uh, names came from England to Denmark. It is an abbot and an abbot and not uh, in, in, in Danish. So a lot of these designations within the church uh, shows a great influence from England to Denmark and Scandinavia in the 11th century. Uh, and then a lot of these things we can't really 
measure. Uh, one example is Monty Python. Uh, Danes and English, they are laughing at Monty Python. They really like the jokes. Uh, and then I have heard from a lot of people that if you try to do it in, in, in France and Italy, they can't see that it's funny at all. So maybe there's a kind of shared, uh, shared sense of humor that yeah. may go back far. And um, something I forgot to ask about, because this is quite, seemed to be quite unusual when, when it comes to rule and Danish kings, that they were elected, not chosen from blood, but not necessarily, but they were elected as kings in the Danish empire. Who were elected? The Sorry. kings, I think yeah. you meant. Okay, yeah. Um... It is extremely complicated. If you take the uh, Kalmar Union after 1397, uh, then you have Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Schleswig and Holstein as the, the five big units. Uh, and in one country, in Norway, uh, the ruler inherited Norway. Uh, in Denmark and Sweden, uh, they were chosen by, they were elected by the Rights Council, uh, the Council of the Realm. Uh, in uh, Holstein, they were also uh, vassals of the German emperor. So they were chosen by the emperor uh, in, uh, or by the local nobility, it changed over time. And in Schleswig, um, yeah, sometimes inherited, sometimes elected. So there were all different kinds of getting the position as ruler. Uh, so it's actually strange that uh, it continued that it was kept together for so long time because they had to take the same person elected or, uh, or um, inherited. In practice, they were all of the royal family uh, in the in the uh, Danish Empire. Uh, it was actually only in Sweden they had a few examples of people who were not of royal blood, who became rulers, but that there were few. So they all belonged to the family, nevertheless. So they were, were elected, but not really. Not not uh, totally freely. I mean, you couldn't uh, you couldn't go to the you couldn't stand on, on the square and say, I want to become king. Mm. That would be almost blasphemy. Yeah. Uh, so there has been some ideas that uh, if you belong to the royal family, you are better suited, uh, you are better able of uh, governing a kingdom. And I think we touched briefly upon, thank you so much for coming. It's been an honor to have you on. And uh, before we go, do you have anything you wish to promote on the social media where people can contact you? And is the book available in English as well and not just Danish? Uh, the book came in was it 2004 and it has been re-edited uh, recently. It came in, in several uh, editions. And actually it is, it has been translated now. It will come uh, next year in 2022. Mm. Uh, in English, in a, a new and totally revised version. Do you have anything else you wish, wish for me to put in the description below, or do you have uh, any links you wish me to put down on websites? Uh, I can send you a, a link uh, with also with the publisher of the English yeah. version. That would be fantastic. I will do that, certainly. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Alan. This has been WellThatH12. You can find us on Instagram under WellThatH12, where you will get updates on the latest guests and when the episode comes out. 
We are available available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, wherever you can find podcast. Also on YouTube. And next week we'll take a look at the second part of the Danish Empire, the height and fall, which of course they will be in the title is of course inspired by your book. So thank you very much for coming. This has been the rise of the Danish Empire, and I'll see you next thank time. You. Thank you so much. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.